is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day, another great week, in fact, in this greatest nation on God's green earth, but not such a great opening to the week. There was another shooting, of course, this one getting a lot of attention because it's at a very busy airport, one of the leading airports in the United States. Actually, it wasn't a DFW, it was Love Field in Dallas. What's it about? Well, what's so different about it is it was a female shooter. We will bring you that story. It just happened. Uh, we also had over the weekend a story at the University of Michigan where a uh, white coat day when they welcomed new medical school students to one of America's finest medical schools, and the University of Michigan is, uh, they, uh, the students walked out, several hundred of them. Why? Because the doctor who had been selected to give the keynote address welcoming them to their medical school education is pro-life and has, has spoken against the uh, idea of uh, legalized abortion. Uh, is that a reason to walk out at a university? There's also another uh, spokesman for the pro-life cause uh, from Michigan and from the same university, Jim Harbaugh, uh, one of the most uh, fabled, admired, successful football coaches in the country. He was 14 years in the NFL. He has actually brought a team to the Super Bowl. And uh, he is the revered in Michigan football coach for the Wolverines. But uh, what is uh, going to happen now to Jim Harbaugh that he spoke at an anti-abortion event? Should people pay a price for that? And should Iran pay a price for defying the world? on uh, nuclear weapons. We will talk about that with, um, with uh, Ambassador John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to President Trump and a former UN Ambassador under President uh, Bush, who has a, uh, an idea which is novel for not a firing squad, but for a flying squad to go to various Arab capitals in dealing with Iran. And then uh, we're also going to be speaking to a political pundit extraordinaire, one-time guru for Bill Clinton and the Democrats, now a very outspoken pro-Trump conservative, Dick Morris, on the return of Trump. He believes in utter triumph and unstoppable and that the election is likely to be Trump versus Hillary again with the same result, Hillary loses, Trump wins. We will be talking about that with uh, Dick Morris, who has a, a new book. Uh, first of all, just uh, minutes ago, the um, police shot a woman who had fired shots into the ceiling at Dallas Love Field Airport. This is the uh, way the matter was described on CNN. But today, this morning, at about 10.59, a 37-year-old woman gets dropped off, goes inside near the ticket counters in front of Southwest, goes at one point into a restroom, exits the restroom, now she's either put a, some sort of hoodie on or some other different type of clothing that she had when she walked in. At some point, simultaneously, one of our officers is in the area. 
she produces a handgun and begins firing. At this point, we don't know where exactly the individual was aiming. For the most of what we're seeing now, she was aiming uh, at the ceiling. At, but there was uh, several rounds that are found. Simultaneously as she's doing that, our officer engages the suspect, strikes her in the lower extremities. She's taken into custody and is currently at Parkland Hospital. No other individuals were injured in this event other than the suspect who, again, is at Parkland. That's all we have right now, but we wanted to ensure that our community knows that this is not an active situation. We want to make sure our community knows that there are no other passengers, uh, family members, or, or, or people in the airport that have been, uh, that are victims, uh, and that's what we got at this time. Thank you very much. Okay, that was uh, Chief Eddie Garcia of uh, Dallas about this matter. He, uh, um, the officers inside the airport confronted the woman and shot her in the lower extremities, as you just heard. And yes, she's taken to Parkland Memorial Hospital in an unknown condition. The cell phone video shared with NBC showed travelers on the ground behind chairs at the gates and sheltering in place while the shooting unfolded, uh, at least 10 rounds. Uh, one of the eyewitnesses, whose name is Colby James, told NBC that the woman said she had an announcement to make and then started to say something about her husband cheating on her. And uh, she basically said her announcement, take, talking about her husband was cheating or something, and she basically said she was about to blow this sucker up. Uh, I'm not sure if she means her husband here or the whole airport. After she said that, she pulled out a gun. She fired the first shot in the air. Basically, everybody scattered. We were running. There were 10 to 12 more shots after that. Look, thank God it apparently is not a, a fatal uh, shooting. There was a fatal shooting over the weekend in Whistler. And, uh, and that is remarkable in the resort. The... It's a, known to be a ski resort. It's also a beautiful summer resort. And uh, several other people were injured in shootings in British Columbia. The uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police responded to gunshots in at least three locations in Langley, uh, southeast of Vancouver. And ABC News, two dead, five injured, and uh, shooting at a Southern California park. And then there's Chicago. Uh, Chicago shooting 65, think about it, 65 people shot, five fatally, in weekend violence across the city, as CPD says. Uh, someday there will be real news from Chicago, and we'll give it a great deal of attention where no shootings occur. The, the one thing about this woman, thank God nobody was hurt in Dallas. Of course, people are terribly disrupted because the flights are delayed and departures are delayed and they had to clear out the airport and it's a security disaster. And, uh, okay, the, the one thing that one hopes, right, is that this lady, whoever she is, and I know nothing about her other than that she came into the airport, she was complaining about her husband cheating on her, and she took out a gun and started firing. Uh, can we agree that someone like this should not be able to purchase any other firearms ever again if 
if you are that insane, uh, that distraught, that emotional, that you're going to start shooting at the ceiling, I mean, come on. Uh, that's not an appropriate way to express your indignation, no matter how bad your situation at home may be. Uh, there's a um, Brett Baer of Fox News uh, has a summary that's devastating about the impact of the hearings for Trump. And then there is um, other uh, summaries of where he stands in the summer uh, and standing in the summer far less in control of the Republican Party, according to many sources and according to leading conservative sources than President Trump had stood before. Uh, we will also tell you about that situation, that walkout at the medical school at University of Michigan. It shows a complete lack of any open-mindedness, decency, uh, just civility on the part of uh, the left, that uh, someone who is a physician, a respected and, in fact, very popular professor at that school is not allowed to speak because she sent out some uh, pro-life tweets, really. We will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. Coming up, we're going to be speaking to uh, Ambassador John Bolton about the situation in Iran and the chance, and it's always a chance, it has not been ruled out even by the Biden administration of some kind of use of force to stop the Iranian nuclear threat. Uh, all of this goes back to the question of technology. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about the most cutting-edge military peacetime food technology. They just had a con uh, conference on that that is going on in the Middle East and right here in the United States. Um, check out the, um, the app that is completely free from our crowd. Uh, you can go to our website, michaelmedved.com, click on the banner. Our crowd is crowdsourced funding for technological high-tech startups in Israel and here in the United States. And there are a bunch of companies that are changing the world. Uh, check it out at uh, our crowd at michaelmedved.com. Just look for the banner. It is my brother's company. And yes, I'm very partial to my brother and, <laughs> and to our crowd. Um, okay, coming up, uh, Headline in NBC News, dozens walk out of University of Michigan white coat ceremony. Okay, what is a white coat ceremony? White coat ceremony is when people are getting their white coats, when they're just beginning medical school. So this is not kids. It's, it's people who have already graduated from college or university and uh, are pursuing their medical education. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons that doctors cost so much is because their education costs so much. A uh, typical physician will go through a, a total, total of like 10 years of training uh, after high school. I mean, that's, it's a lot of time and a lot of effort. And uh, the story from NBC is dozens of incoming medical students walked out of their University of Michigan white coat ceremony yesterday when the keynote speaker 
a doctor with anti-abortion views was introduced. A tweet showing the uh, medical students and some other attendees of the ceremony uh, walk out as Kristen Collier approached the podium. That has gone viral. As of Monday afternoon, the tweet has been liked more than 540,000 times. Okay, this is appalling. Uh, Can you imagine if uh, they had someone who was very pro-abortion? And certainly that would be something that would not be unheard of in a university, great public university like University of Michigan. Can you imagine that pro-life students, and there are some, uh, that pro-life students would walk out, stage a protest, and that it would be liked on uh, on a tweet 540,000 times? After it was announced that Collier would be the keynote speaker of the event, a petition for the university to choose a different speaker garnered signatures from 248 current students, 100 incoming students, and 72 others, including alumni. The petition cited instances in which Collier expressed her anti-abortion views in tweets and in interviews. Uh One of the examples of what she wrote is uh, she did a tweet in May. Uh, Okay, get ready. You're going to hear something just shocking. She said, uh, holding on to a view of feminism where one fights for the rights of all women and girls, especially those who are most vulnerable, I cannot not lament the violence directed at my prenatal sisters in the act of abortion done in the name of autonomy. She also did an interview with The Pillar, a Catholic publication. A Collier detailed her conversion from secular humanist to Christian to, quote, a pro-life person. She said uh, in that interview, I think it is good to be reminded that people can change their minds on beliefs they have held for a very long time through a culture of encounter with others and ultimately through the grace of God said uh, Collier. Okay, do you hear anything here that is so shocking that you want to walk out in the middle of a speech, that you can't be exposed to it, that it's somehow going to assault the uh, young people who might be hearing that point of view in the beginning of their medical school experience? The um, University of Michigan went through with their plan of having Collier, who works there as an assistant professor and director of the program on health, spirituality, and religion. A a spokeswoman for Michigan Medicine at the University of Michigan said Collier, quote, was chosen as the keynote speaker for the 2022 White Coat Ceremony based on nominations and votings by members of the UNM uh, Medical School Gold Humanitarian Honor Society which is comprised of medical students, house officers, and faculty. The white coat ceremony is not a platform for discussion of controversial issues, she added. Dr. Collier never planned to address a divisive topic as part of her remarks. However, the University of Michigan does not revoke an invitation to a speaker based on their personal beliefs. Can we say hurrah? I mean, (laughs) this is actually... A little bit of guts. Now, are the students going to occupy some office here? The statement said that Michigan Medicine is committed to providing safe reproductive care 
and would continue to offer abortion care, which is still legal in Michigan for the time being. The state has an anti-abortion law that predates Roe, but a judge suspended it in May in anticipation of the Supreme Court uh, overturning Roe. Before her speech, Collier tweeted that she was truly grateful for the support, emails, texts, prayers, and letters I've received from all over the world regarding the event that will happen today. I feel so bolstered by it, and for my team that have carried me daily through this, I love you, she wrote. Collier did not mention abortion. She did not mention Roe at all during her speech. She did, however, toward the beginning of her speech say, I want to acknowledge the deep wounds our community has suffered over the past several weeks. We have a great deal of work to do for healing to occur, and I hope that for today, for this time, we can focus on what matters most, coming together to support our newly accepted students and their families with the goal of welcoming them into one of the greatest vocations that exists on this earth, the vocation of medicine. Okay, while she was saying those words, uh, about a third of the audience was getting up and walking out. (laughs) Can you imagine? I mean, this is one of those things that the left has become so fanatical in terms of its beliefs that the greatest lack of civility, the, the greatest extremism, the, the determination to undermine even somebody like this uh, obviously very dedicated, very respected doctor, that, that seems all justified. So they're going to take on Jim Harbaugh too. Jim Harbaugh, University of Michigan's head football coach, professed his anti-abortion views at a fundraising event this week, became one of the first prominent sports figures to speak out against abortion since Roe v. Wade was overturned. We'll be covering that. Iran with John Bolton, a uh, possibility of military action. We'll talk. Coming up. And on the Michael Medved Show, it is always an honor to welcome back to the show Ambassador John Bolton. He, of course, was our ambassador to the United Nations under President Bush, under President Trump. He was national security advisor in the White House, and uh, he is also the author of one of the finest books I've read about inside the White House maneuvering and atmosphere and the human side of uh, dealing with all of that. Maybe that's one of the reasons because of the the hearings that have been focusing so much attention on that. It is back on the bestseller list, even though it has came out uh, initially. What, how long ago, John? How how long ago did the, the Room Where It Happened come out? Just just over two years ago, June of, uh, of uh, 2020. So that's that's pretty good. That's like uh, Michelle Obama territory to be to be <laughs> ba- back on the bestseller list after all that time. But um, you, you also have a powerful column that everybody ought to read that appeared last week in the Wall Street Journal. The headline: How to Stiffen Europe's Resolve on Iran. And uh, one of the questions immediately coming up from the title is: What resolve? Uh, has Europe uh, not shown uh, constant equivocation and uncertainty in terms of dealing with Iran? Well, that's that's on a good day, uh, honestly. <laughs> the the uh, 
you know, the title isn't one I've picked. The editors pick the titles. But, okay. but my point, uh, my point was yeah, that's something op-ed writers have to have to live with. But but the point is uh, is that the the allies of the United States who are most directly harmed and threatened by Iran's nuclear weapons program, countries like Israel, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, should go to America's other allies, Britain, France, and Germany. Who are only remotely threatened at this point and say the deal that you cut over our heads in 2015 is at its at death's door and and long overdue for that and now it's time to talk about getting serious about the iranian threat uh, you know the biden administration came into office saying it was important to restore uh, america's alliances and, and i agree with that but in the case of iran they've ignored the allies most directly affected so uh, for those who say I don't don't offer diplomatic solutions often enough, uh, this is the solution I would suggest that the Biden administration pursue, because I think it will help persuade them that they need to stiffen their resolve, too. Part of what you're you're saying, if I read you correctly, is that one of the things that these representatives of Israel and its Arab allies, and it's not too much now to use the term allies, that uh, uh, they would actually talk about the need for some kind of uh, military action it, unless there is a diplomatic solution in the offing. Isn't that the point? Exactly. And, you know, again, for years in the United States, the left here, the left in Europe, even many conservatives in Europe said about Bibi Netanyahu uh, he's just a warmonger. He's looking for an excuse to attack Iran, uh, and he's not engaged in good faith negotiation. And, you know, the reason he didn't think negotiation would work, I think, has been proven because for 20 years we've tried negotiation, and the Iranians have never given up the pursuit of nuclear weapons. Now, the interim prime minister, Yair Lapid, nonetheless is saying diplomacy can't work without a credible military threat. And anybody who knows anything about threats in international affairs uh, knows that any threat you make, you better be prepared to carry out. And that's the kind of serious discussion I'm hoping you can have with a new government in Britain uh, and perhaps even with the Germans and the French, but at least to peel the British off uh, from the EU3 since they're not in the EU anymore, even that would be a significant step forward. And I think a real signal uh, to the rest of the world that we, we continue to take the Iranian threat seriously. Wow. And, uh, and, and by the way, I know you're following the British election, of course. If uh, Liz Truss is the new prime minister, uh, she would be strong in support of Ukraine opposition to Russian aggression and in opposition to Iran, wouldn't she? I think she would be. I don't know Rishi Sunak, the former chancellor, who's the her opponent in the upcoming primary, which is, is what it is in effect among conservative party members. I do know Liz Truss, uh, and I think uh, on issue after issue, uh, most recently in the past couple of days, for example, on the question of how to deal with China, uh, I think her positions have been right on the mark. So uh, we need a strong conservative government. Uh, in, in Britain, a Britain that's now out of the European Union, that doesn't have to run its foreign policy through 27 other members to get it approved. Uh, I think it strengthens Britain. It strengthens the United States, too. 
And and uh, and again, uh, Liz Truss uh, sees herself as the second coming of Margaret Thatcher, which is a good thing. All right, right now, in terms of what's going on in Israel, they're in the midst of yet another election, the fifth one. They have an acting prime minister, Yair Lapid, who is a centrist in Israeli terms. Uh, he would he be paying attention? There's just a piece in Time magazine by the former prime minister Ehud Barak. Uh, under the headline, Iran can transform itself into a nuclear power, and it's too late to stop it by surgical attack. Do you agree with that? No, I don't think it's too late to stop it. I think what what they have that that uh, makes them dangerous is the intellectual capability to build nuclear weapons, which they got years ago from A.Q. Khan, the great Pakistani nuclear proliferator. All the talk about the, by the administration and advocates of the nuclear deal about breakout time and this and that and the other thing is really beside the point. We can't estimate that effectively. We don't know exactly what the full status of Iran's nuclear program is, but we know enough about it that uh, – and may, maybe Barack doesn't mean surgical strike when, when I contemplate uh, destroying their enrichment facilities at Natanz uh, and Fordo destroying their – conversion facility at Esfahan that uh, makes uranium from a solid into a gas and various other military facilities where the weaponization work is going on, uh, I, I think could have a dramatic effect. Ultimately, though, we've got to be clear what we need is a new regime in Tehran. We need a new regime that forswears the pursuit of nuclear weapons and means it. That should be our real objective. And there's a real question in how to get it. By the way, also breaking news, the Times of Israel is reporting that Iranian media, uh, government-controlled media, in other words, claims that an Israeli spy cell was caught laying bombs at a sensitive site in Isfahan, uh, which is one of the sites you just mentioned. Uh, can, you, uh, can you hang with us for a few more minutes, Ambassador Bolton? Sure. Sure. Terrific. That would be that would be very good because, I, what I would uh, when you talk about regime change in Iran, uh, the question is how do you bring that about? And hasn't the Biden administration so far, in some of its miscalculations and its mistakes, and above all in its handling of Afghanistan, uh, hasn't it made the United States a less credible force in terms of changing the situation uh, fundamentally in Iran? We're speaking with Ambassador John Bolton. Uh, he's the author of a powerful piece in the Wall Street Journal just a couple of days ago and also uh, author of the new bestseller. It's also a two-year-old bestseller, but it's been a bestseller for a long time and deserves it. The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir talking about the time that he served as the national security advisor to the United States. And I also, before we part, want to talk about his assessment of where we stand in uh, Ukraine and uh, the American ability to keep our allies together on that all-important struggle. That and more coming up with John Bolton here on The Michael Medved Show.
Tonight on the Michael Medved Show, one of the things that I think all Americans have learned uh, because of the war in Ukraine is what a disaster it is, how horrible it is for the entire world, for the entire globe, if a malevolent, uh, dictatorial, imperialist power has nuclear weapons. Uh, because the entire situation with Russia uh, challenging civilization, and they are, would be very different if they weren't the world's second most formidable nuclear power. And so that puts Iran into focus, and Ambassador John Bolton, who is our honored guest, was just saying that the, the real goal of American policy toward Iran should be regime change, how does that happen, Mr. Ambassador? Well, I think in the case of Iran, if you if you look at the situation inside the country now, the uh, support for the regime is really at a historically low level, not really since the revolution itself in uh, 1979. And this is a dissatisfaction not among educated, middle-class, uh, urban Iranians, which is what we saw in 2009 when President Ahmadinejad uh, basically stole re-election. The Ayatollahs fixed it so that he would win, and there were demonstrations in Tehran and a few other big cities. The opposition now is all across the country. It's out in the smaller cities, the towns, the farms. This is small business people, uh, farmers, uh, professionals all over the country uh, shouting not death to the great Satan or death to Israel. They're shouting death to the Ayatollahs. Uh, now, these, these, uh, this dissatisfaction, which often manifests itself in, uh, in, in large demonstrations, doesn't get reported in the Western press because the Western reporters don't go out into the countryside. They're in Tehran and a few other large cities, and, and they're not out there to see it. But uh, you get the cell phone videos that are, that are broadcast out by Iranians. This regime's in trouble. Uh, that's not to say it's going to fall tomorrow because it has – right now, a monopoly on force with not just the army, but the Revolutionary Guards and the besieging militia. So how to to break its hold over the country? Even in an authoritarian society, uh, there are splits and fissures within the ruling uh, bloc. And uh, I believe within the Revolutionary Guards and the military, uh, there are people who, for their own reasons, uh, in part because they see the suffering of the Iranian people, under this regime, uh, that that you could find ways to break it apart. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. It takes work, uh, but but uh, and there's no guarantee of success. But oftentimes when an authoritarian regime collapses, uh, even though it has a very imposing edifice from without, uh, a, a good swift kick to the front door proves it's rotten and the whole thing collapses. And that could well happen here. Could it happen in Russia? I mean, right now, uh, the whole world has been inspired by the continued heroism of the Ukrainian uh, resistance to evil, to the invasion and the attempted destruction of their country. Uh, is there uh, a chance for anything that would look like a Ukrainian victory? Well, I think I think if we define victory uh, as regaining territorial control over all the territory it had before Russia invaded in 2014, we 
we're still a long way away. I think it's been a huge moral victory that the Ukrainians have done as well as they have. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. This is a territorial war, and right now Russia's taking more territory than it's losing. What I'm worried about is that Putin and his advisors know of the weaknesses in the West, in the United States, in France, Germany, and other places, and that they will contrive a scenario within 60 or 90 days where they say publicly, okay, we've uh, achieved our objectives, which won't be true, but they'll say it anyway. We've achieved our objectives. We're calling a halt to all offensive military operations. We call on Ukraine to do the same, and we want to negotiate a ceasefire. There are people and in leadership positions in France and Germany who will say, great, we agree with that. Let's end this terrible war, and let's turn the page and get back to business as usual. Uh, and if the Russians do that, it could leave the Ukrainians in very serious uh, uh, situation, which is why it's so important for us, particularly the United States, but all the NATO allies that are helping, to speed up the delivery of the weapons that we've promised to the Ukrainians, because if they can reverse this situation and put the Russians on the defensive, then I think the prospects for a much more favorable resolution, much more favorable to Ukraine, uh, become more possible. The uh, There's been a lot of surprise that the alliance has held as firm as it has for a while. Do you think that Germany is the weakest link? Well, I think it's a race between Germany and France. Uh, I- Italy, we're, we're now going into an election period, not, not clear what will happen there. Uh, I think uh, the, the best aspect of the alliance, frankly, is we're going to get two new members, Finland and Sweden, after seven decades of neutrality, uh, have, have finally decided it's time to join the, most of the rest of the West and, uh, and sign up with, with NATO. That is certainly something the Russians never contemplated would happen. And Sweden and Finland will be uh, significant positive additions to, to NATO. Uh, yeah, I mean, and 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 again, if you're talking about actually winning a war, that's already a signifier of a uh, Western uh, victory. Uh, aside from uh, uh, the the fate of Ukraine and its importance, uh, don't you feel a little bit of caution about it becoming a political issue here in the United States? There are some voices within the conservative movement, the Republican Party, some candidates for Senate and and more, who uh, seem to be talking about disengaging with this ongoing struggle uh, against Putin. Does that concern you? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the virus of isolationism is out there. Uh, People who don't see the significance of this, not, not just in Europe, although it's obviously critical there, But what lesson China draws from it, and uh, not just with regard to Taiwan, but all along its periphery in the Indo-Pacific, from Japan all the way across uh, Indochina to uh, to India and Pakistan, this is a this is a very significant event to happen in the middle of Europe. And if it turns out that unprovoked aggression succeeds, even in part, and that the, the 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 penalties for that are not severe and long lasting. China will draw all the wrong conclusions, and so will smaller uh, aggressive uh, rogue states that that may not come up on our radar screen but pose real dangers to friends of ours in, in their respective regions.
including Iran, amused the other day a quick comment on the axis of good, as they termed it, with uh, uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey getting together? Well, you know, this is this is uh, this is this shows a lot about Turkey. I mean, that's a whole separate subject. But just to pick up on Iran for a minute and their role in this axis of good, you know, right now uh, uh, we're in the aftermath of a cancellation of a of a big conference and and get together uh, by an Iranian opposition group would have been held in Albania, where they're now based, uh, because of the threat of. Iran committing a terrorist act against that group, as they tried to do unsuccessfully in Paris for the same meeting in 2018. Uh, and and they have threatened uh, Americans. They threatened by, by threatening uh, to attack that rally citizens from all over uh, Europe and, and North America. And this is the kind of government we're talking about. We watch how the Russian government performs in Ukraine. Uh, look at how the Ukraine. Uh, look at how the Iranian government would uh, perform if it had had the chance to do it. It it uh, it's hard for me to understand why <clears throat> many people in Washington don't get the point about what this says regarding the character of the Iranian regime um, and and the the threat they pose to us, to their neighbors in the region, and and to their own people, and uh, thereby to the world. Uh, Ambassador John Bolton, uh, his book is still um, both entertaining, it's a little bit terrifying, uh, it is deeply illuminating about the way that uh, White House works and foreign policy is decided. The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, uh, on the bestseller lists again. Uh, John Bolton's uh, column is going to be linked to our website at michaelmedved.com, How to Stiffen Europe's Resolve on Iran. Coming up, we're going to speak to somebody else who's a real political veteran, who is a strong supporter of President Trump. Uh, He was a strong supporter and chief advisor to uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. And uh, then he moved over to the right. Dick Morris will be joining us. He has a big new book uh, called The Return, The Return of Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but more than that, The Return of Trump in a predicted big comeback in this greatest nation on God's green earth. (laughs) 